Welcome to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. I'm Michael Lutz. Yay! We did it. Hooray! This episode's a little bit late. <laughs> uh, we're, we're recording a little bit later in the month. Normally we would record like the second week and release it the third week of the... Uh, of any given month, but it's busy. This is a busy time. Yeah, it's a busy time. It's the holidays and it's the academic job market season. Yay! Uh, so yeah, so it's just a, it's a little bit, so sorry for the delay, but we're recording it this today and uh, you don't, as a listener, you don't know what today is, but uh, hopefully <laughs> I'm releasing it this afternoon. So you might know what today is. Oh boy. Based on when you um, hear it. Yeah, and also just so you guys know, um, because I can never not record this podcast when, when there is not work being done on the house that I am in. Um, because I've recorded this at several places, and uh, this has happened multiple times now. Uh, there is someone in my basement uh, working on our heating pipes so we don't freeze to death this winter. And if you hear any like weird bangs or noises, uh, that's what that is. So it's just a nice little Easter egg for y'all um, in in the, the tradition of Michael has weird noises in the background of his recording for the podcast. And, and let us know on Twitter like what you think that worker is doing. You know, like what part of the... Are they working on the radiator? Are they working on the coal part where you shovel yeah. coal in? I don't know. It, you're in New yeah. England. I assume that you got to shovel it's, a lot of coal. We, we shovel coal into the radiator, um, which is mounted on a whale. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> China Melville's uh, <laughs> Michael Lutz's house. Um, we're about to talk for two hours about a great book that I enjoyed, and it kind of came out of left field a little bit. Um, at least as far as what the content was, um, from what I thought it was, at least there's a difference between those things. We are looking at uh, Kira Gaunt's Kira D. Gaunt, uh, the game's black girls play. Learning the ropes from double Dutch to hip hop is the subtitle. That's it. That's after that. After that colon. Yeah. Um, and this is a book of. I, I think we can say at the top here, it's a book of anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, yeah. It's ethnomusicology. Uh, yes. So, oh, I guess so. I guess it, it, you know what? I have, yeah, I have kind of proceeded through the, this whole thing, reading this book, thinking this is anthropological. But you, but you are a hundred percent right. Like, yeah, Kiragant is a professor of ethnomusicology. Um, it, it so, which is, I guess, a subfield in my mind. Up until this very moment, I've been thinking of ethno, ethnomusicology as like a subfield of anthropology. But mm-hmm. really, it's like a subfield of music studies, right? Right, it's a it's a subfield of music studies, uh, and also um, it has a lot of overlap with like folklore studies, mm-hmm. um, because so much, and I mean especially this is this is apparent in in Gant's book, right? Because so much of it comes down to kind of like popular music, not in the sense of popular commercial music, but kind of um, you know street songs and games and sort of uh, those types of things. So yeah, no, 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 this is. I mean, it, it is anthropological in its outlook, but I would say sort of generically what this thing is doing is ethnomusicology. Yeah, yeah. From the from the angle, reading the book and thinking about the method, which we'll talk about as we get into the book, but there's so much that is uh, autoethnography, I guess, um, and then like just normal ethnography that uh, that I, for whatever reason, I, as I was reading, I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, she must be in a department of anthropology, but I don't think she is. I think she has, for the most part, been exclusively housed in 
like schools of music and things like that. Yeah. Where is she? Did you already give us that information? Uh, I did not yet. She's she is currently so at the back of the book here. This book came out in 2007. It was published by NYU, so the New York University Press. Um, on the back of the book, it says uh, she was an associate professor of ethnomusicology at Baruch College in the CUNY system. Uh-oh. <laughs> Keeping that in there so people okay. know we're human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See the warts. <laughs> yeah. Just to dispel the rumors that we're uh, robots or, or AI. Um, but uh, so, so she was there, but now she is, and I looked this up right before, she's at the University at Albany. Not University of Albany, but the University at Albany in the SUNY system. So the State University of New York system. Um, So yeah, so that's kind of like the lay of the land of the book and and kind of where she's located. And I think she's actually been at maybe one institution in between these two based on some YouTube stuff that I saw. Mm -hmm. Um, She's actually, I don't know if you you looked her up in in any way, but... Yeah, she's given a lot of TED Talks. I also thought that was an interesting thing. A lot of, like, four TED Talks. Yeah. Um, And she also, like, we'll probably touch on this in covering the chapters, right? But she is, uh, she began her training, and she tells this story in the book, right? She began her training as as a classical voice artist. Um, So she actually has, like, performances that she's recorded and things like that. Uh, And she, like, we will get to this, but she has her moment where she switches from uh, being basically a performance academic to uh, a... the sort of like investigatory or research academic uh so yeah no she's got a really interesting sort of digital footprint yeah absolutely and you can actually see her sing. there's there's a few youtube videos of her because i was looking up how to say her first name because mm-hmm. it you know it could be a kyra could be a kira i didn't know um and yeah so there's a couple performances of her doing uh like jazz singing uh, which is interesting um, this book also, just to, to note it, uh, in the acknowledgments of the book, um, two things I thought were very interesting. It, it was partially funded by an NEH fellowship, a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, which is quite impressive, um, and a Ford Foundation grant. Um, Ford Foundation is very interesting. The, the, the kind of purpose of, of the Ford Foundation grant is to identify a uh, generally, although this isn't always the case, but generally early career academics from diverse backgrounds and just giving them money to do research. Um, it is excellent. A lot of a lot of uh, really good books have come out of that. So I was really surprised and delighted to see that this book came out of that uh, grant system. Um, and it won a bunch of awards, mm-hmm. like a whole bunch. Um, there are a couple on the book here. Uh, maybe. Nope, they're not on my cover of the book, actually. But, um, yeah, it won a whole bunch of awards from different, uh, both academic organizations and popular press outlets, which is cool. Let's talk, let's talk about the book. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the book as, as someone hammers uh, in, in the distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the book, what do you think about it, Cameron? I don't, so I, you asked me this earlier when we were off mic, but um, I suggested this book. You know, I, I said that, that I thought it would be an interesting thing for us to read after our last episode, which was on uh, Kawa, Man Playing Games. And I suggested this book because I had seen several people over the past year, uh, but I mean, I've seen it several times, but especially over the past year, talk about teaching this book uh, in game studies classrooms. And I thought, well, 
that's a book to look at, especially because we, uh, when we talked about the Kawa, we just talked about basically how the top-down theory apparatus that Kawa constructs um, is is racist. It's got a lot of problems in it. Um, And I thought it would be interesting to look at a book that it, it is, as far as my understanding was at the time, was more of a bottom-up approach, you know, uh, anthropological dealing with the data, going out and interviewing people, things like that, um, that then constructed some categories out of actual experience as opposed to cons- general anthropological concepts um, like Calwa did. So I thought maybe this would be a good book to put in conversation with Calwa. Um We'll talk about why in just a minute. I don't know that they're doing the same thing. I think this book is actually pretty far away from anything we would call traditional game studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that's really productive in a lot of ways, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yes. No. Um, I mean, I had kind of a similar reaction to you, right, in, in looking at the introduction, uh, that uh, really what she is doing here is not looking... so. Like, just to lay this out, right, the, the things um, Gaunt is is going to study uh, are, like, hand-clapping game songs, uh, cheers, and uh, double-dutch routines, and things like that. Things uh, that, um, you know, you can imagine young girls, and especially young black girls, playing on, on the street. Um, but she doesn't really look at these at, as games. She's looking at them as a form of popular music. Yes. Yeah, that they are. I mean, she she's identifying all these different kind of conceptual terms or or um, big methodological concerns, and she is looking at these games in particular, these activities, um, as being moments where we talk about gender, moments where we talk about blackness, moments where we talk about sociality, moments where we talk about um, what gets to count as music or not, right? Mm-hmm. All of those things intersect and complicate each other at the location of the hand clapping game, or the, especially double dutch. I mean, the, the yeah. I think the for me the strongest part of the book is the last couple chapters where she really gets into double dutch culture um, mm-hmm. and the kind of warping thing that happens around double dutch. And I think if you were to ask me, you know, what is the thing that is most game studies in this book? It, it is those last couple chapters. Uh, I, I agree, absolutely. Because right. they, uh, yeah. yeah, they feel like you could like excerpt them and put them in a game studies reader or something. Um, yeah, but there's definitely a lot of um, in those last chapters. That is where it gets the most game studies because she she starts talking about um, organized competitions for double dutch and uh, lots of questions about like what makes this activity, uh, you know, sort of athletic or sportive. Um, what makes it uh, a professional kind of sport, all of those things I think are, are extremely relevant for games um, at the present moment, especially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so so the, in, in a general sense, methodologically, I don't know if this looks like a game studies book, but I also think that's really productive and that it helps us put pressure on why we think certain analyses of games look like game studies work and why some things don't look like game studies work. Um, And so I think the way that we're going to discuss this book is, you know, by working through it in the way that we work through all the other books, we're going to go chapter by chapter. We're going to talk about the argument and kind of have a discussion about that. But also I kind of want to stop every now and again and think, well, what if we did game studies this way, right? Um, What if we talked about StarCraft in the way that, that she's talking about 
hand clapping games. And if we did that, then what would that produce? Interesting. Okay, exciting. I think that I think it'll be a fun activity. Right. I, we have to hope. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just sort of returning to the text a bit, we've already sort of laid out uh, what her project is here. Um, that she wants to look at these at these games at these pastimes. Uh, not only as a form of popular music, but as a way. Uh, actually, this this um, to some extent uh, echoes um, Kawa, because she wants to see how these activities operate as uh, socialization vectors for like learning how to be black or like what blackness is, what is black identity, as well as um, you know sexuality and gender roles, uh, and also sort of means of transgressing those roles or subverting expectations. Uh, so there is running throughout a kind of chicken and egg uh, quality where she, and she embraces this, she's looking at um, the ways that these games might model certain behaviors or subjectivities uh, for the people who participate in them, um, but then also looking at how the people are not determined by those subjectivities, right? Sort of the, the way that they then enact uh, the identities that they construct. Uh, they don't, obviously, they don't see themselves as being constructed, right? Uh, they see this as a, a kind of more uh, collaborative, willful uh, kind of self-construction. Yeah, absolutely. And she develops, well, partially adapts and partially develops, I guess I should say, the language around that, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, she, she looks to, is it, is it Paul Gilroy first? The, the second is Cornell West, right? Yeah. Uh, I believe Gilroy is the first person she goes to. She kind of quotes two people at one time. Yeah. Um, Gilroy and West. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in order to talk about what she, uh, or what Cornell West calls kinetic orality, which is like the lever through which all of this kind of gets manipulated. Um, and it's basically just uh, physically embodied music. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that fair as a distillation? You think? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just I'm I'm going to quote uh, her quote from Cornell West here, just so we can get it out there. Um, this is Cornell West uh, by cor- by kinetic orality. I mean dynamic, repetitive, and energetic rhetorical styles that form communities, uh, e.g., antiphonal styles and linguistic innovations that accent fluid improvisational identities. By passionate physicality, I mean bodily stylizations of the world, syncopations, and polyrhythms that assert one's somebodiness in a society in which one's body has no perceptible public worth, only economic value as a laboring mechanism. Um, so clearly, right, what he's talking about there is specifically like black bodies uh, and how black bodies uh, make like are, are seen or uh, supposed to operate uh, and sort of kinetic orality as a way of, of asserting one, as he puts it, one's somebodiness uh, in a society where your body is, is you know, denigrated, basically. <laughs> Yeah, and, and is seen as as exclusively as the commodity, which is a an interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a line in in African American studies, Africana studies, and Black studies, kind of whatever branch um, or, or and, and name that you want to give to it, and it's kind of academic form. Um, and departments get called those different things in different locations in the United States. 
Um, but there is a obviously a relationship between blackness in the United States, which is kind of the cir- circumscribed area that she's talking about, and capitalism. Um, those things are intimately tied together historically and in the contemporary period, and she talks about those occasionally. But I kind of want to plant a flag here at the very beginning to say that I think there are interesting moments where uh, capitalism gets brought up in this book and economics get brought up in this book uh, and that they are not fully pulled through. No, it, they it, aren't. Um, and, and so I, I, I also want to pause at kind of those moments uh, in this book to talk about, well, if there's a chicken and egg relationship between the lived experience of blackness and music uh, in a general sense, then capitalism is also in there mm-hmm. and yet gaunt for whatever reason is very unwilling to like get into the nitty gritty of the economics in any situation um and to talk about the political economy that sits around music and blackness there's a whole chapter that's about nelly basically and about a very particular kind of early 2000s hip-hop and yet the the political economy of how that operates isn't isn't uh, addressed so um it's interesting to me that that is coming up in the introduction but we only see kind of like bright splashes of it and of course mm-hmm. cornell west i mean that's one of his and paul gilroy too that's that's some of their major concerns in, in their work right is the relationship between blackness and capitalism um so it's interesting right. that that gets evoked as part of the apparatus of the citational apparatus and yet the content kind of is is pushed out occasionally yeah no and just to sort of uh make it clear also what she's borrowing from from gilroy primarily so we've already covered uh west uh in kinetic uh orality um one of the points that she pulls in from Gilroy here that is, I think, opposite to all of the stuff we're talking about is is the idea for Gilroy that, um, uh, how to put this, like the traditional sort of notions of, of archive and transcription are inadequate, or rather that they uh, they privilege certain types of, of um, recording and transcription and certain ways of knowing uh, at the expense of others, um, and that there is definitely a racial component to this. So like, for instance, uh, you know, historically in the United States, uh, black folks haven't been taught to read, right? And like, in, during slavery, this was a very concerted political point. Uh, that, uh, you know, if the enslaved people couldn't read, then uh, they would have to have everything dictated to them. It would make them, like, more subservient or what have you. Um, And so he's kind of, Gilroy kind of is pointing out toward um, all of the other ways that social memory gets kind of uh, recorded, but not recorded in in the normal sense, right? The ways that uh, traditions get cemented within communities and that memory passes along a sense of identity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, there, there's a quote. This is, this is not coming out of the Gilroy, but this is a little bit later in the introduction that I think really grounds kind of both of those. The, the reason for citing both of those uh, authors, uh, she writes that that this book is about how African Americans learn the rules rules in quotation marks of black social identity and musical practice beyond the dance floor and the music video. Um, which is just to say that obviously there's a historical relation to. Um, the conditions of slavery, the conditions of severe oppression, right? And Mm -hmm. that the methods of adaptation that black social identity broadly constructed had adopted in order to transmit information during that time period are still lively and operative um, and part of social life. Um, And, you know, I was trying to think, right, you know, uh, (laughs) not to... to, um, 
uh, reveal a big secret here, but we're white, Michael. Oh, yeah. No, we are. <laughs> um, and I, so I was trying to think of ways, you know, analogous ways that whiteness operates in the same way. And, and you know, anyone who's done um, any kind of reading around race studies, uh, you know, part of the way that whiteness is both invented and, you know, you're deeply familiar with this as, a, as an early modernism guy. Um but part of the way that whiteness is maintained is simply through difference, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Whiteness doesn't have to have qualities of itself if it can define itself via difference between blackness, indigeneity, things like that. Right. Um, and so I was trying to think, you know, why? what are the, some of the mechanisms through which uh, whiteness gets reproduced beyond just structural power um, in this way? And I couldn't really come up with any. It's hard mm-hmm. to think of things. I, I mean, there's the the attempted recapture of like American folklore, so like Civil War wave music, things mm-hmm. like that. Like the Lumineers are perhaps yes. whiteness, <laughs> right? Um, but it's a different kind of thing. You know, the, that jangly guitar noise. I, I think what what Gaunt is really uh, helpful for thinking through is that the way that identity is maintained through music, and it is in the case of blackness, it has to be positive. Um, and I don't mean positive as in the sense of like good, but uh, positive in the sense of like productive and producing a, a form of identity in the world that is not purely one of difference, but is one of a statement of like, I am a human being, I'm a person, things like that. But what I'm interested in, and this is kind of the anthropology stuff I was talking about at the beginning, is that her sample population of who she talked to, because she did a a lot of like uh, oral history kind of stuff and a lot of ethnography, that those, that's, it's a fairly interesting and limited group, I thought. Um, So she says, I interviewed 17 African-American women who ranged in age from 18 to 65 and who were working and or studying at the University of Michigan. I needed a context from which to interpret the games I was studying, and I wanted that context to be shaped by black women's voices, memories, and lived experiences. These women shared their life stories through black musical interactions with females and males, which made quite a difference in the ways I read my analysis of black girls' musical play and gender relations in black culture. Um, and then uh, skipping a paragraph, this is the other thing I thought, or I think is very important for understanding this book. She says, all of the women I interviewed traced their lineage to southern states rather than to locations outside the United States in Africa or other parts of the African diaspora. Uh, for the sake of managing the data, I decided to limit my attention to these women instead of women of Caribbean or recent African extract. I am clear from my interactions with other blacks from the Caribbean and Africa that our orientations to hand clapping and singing are not the same, though we borrow from one another in many instances. Uh, For example, many Jamaican and Trinidadian hand clapping game songs tend to accent beats one and three in a four beat meter rather than accenting beats two and four with clapping and finger snapping. Um, And so what I think there are all kinds of things in the mix here that I think are maybe important to flag. Um, So one fairly limited population of people that she's talking to um Mm -hmm. two these are people who are at the university of michigan um and many of the people that she's talking about when she names them in the text of of the interviewees they're almost all people at least to my mind or to my memory who are pursuing advanced degrees um in the at that institution which is a selection of the population so it's people who trace their lineage to the southern states, which could be Louisiana or it could be Georgia. Mm-hmm. 
uh, mm-hmm. right? The cultures of those two places and the instantiation of different regimes. Mm-hmm. Those are different, radically different, like, musical cultures. So that's an interesting thing, I think, to note, that, that in moving away from the southern states, they become people with uh, southern identity in their, in their genealogy, um, and the specificities don't seem to matter very much for Gaunt. Um, and then the last thing that's important is that this is a, a tactical, methodological exclusion of Afro-Caribbean and other people from the African diaspora uh, on the grounds of they do songs differently, which I'm, I'm interested in in a general sense. So they, these things are all going to come up, I think, th- through the rest of the book as we talk about it, because she herself brings them up. But I think they're important to note that it's an interesting uh, big umbrella to put everyone under. Um, but that umbrella has some really tactical, and, I, and I, I'm specifically using the word tactical here, but tactical exclusions being made. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. But then uh, I guess we can start with the first chapter. Then? Sure. Yeah, let's talk about the first chapter. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, the- I'll say really briefly before this that I, to my reading, so this book has eight chapters, mm-hmm. um, including a conclusion, or nine, I guess, with an introduction and conclusion. So seven body chapters, and the first two are like methods chapters. Yes. So I yeah, I just want people to know that that as oh, we okay okay I thought you I thought there was something following on no 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 that. just okay. as we talk yes, about no. these first two they're going to be less examples in these because she she's yeah. not really she's talking about them in a general sense but she really gets into very specific examples the further on in the book. Right. Yeah. No. So the first two first two chapters are our methods, and then sort of the rest of the chapters uh, could be called case studies to varying yeah. degrees. Uh, so yeah, uh, this this book really sort of begins in earnest with the chapter slide games as lessons in black musical style, um, and she sort of starts at this moment. Um, that I guess is very familiar to me and probably to you, but I also don't really know how familiar it would be to our readers. I don't know how young they are, uh, but sort of the late 80s, early 90s, uh, where rap and hip hop kind of entered the mainstream. Um, and uh, sort of, this was like the uh, Tipper Gore era, right? Of, um, oh my gosh, can you believe like how, how horrible and violent and misogynist this music is? Uh so on and so forth, right? That the sort of moral panic over over the the rise of popular rap music, um, and uh, Gaunt sort of wants to take a moment and read against this grain of uh, like basically music made by uh, African Americans uh, as being sort of primarily controlled by men and primarily sort of like this culture of misogyny or whatever, because she uh, says, you know. Are there earlier points of access uh, in in young black girls' lives um, where they might you know have access to music making? And again, right, she is herself like musically oriented, not just academically, but she was uh, you know training as a voice artist. Um, and she ends up finding this in hand clapping games. Hand clapping games are kind of her first uh, thing to look at as a way that uh, young girls and young black girls, especially learn the earliest kind of, uh, I guess, skills or tools that one would need to become musically talented or at least adept. Yeah. Um, yeah, that they are, you know, as we talked about in the introduction, they're kind of uh, an acculturation method. They're a way of learning how to be in the world. 
Um, I mean, did you do a lot of hand clapping games? Uh, or were you around this kind of thing when you were growing up? Uh, so I, I did not do them really personally. And here's where it gets really damn weird. Um, I don't know if a lot of people around me did these things, but like almost, I would say almost all of the, of the cheers that she ends up naming in this book are things that I have heard before. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, like, <laughs> yeah, there's such, it's weird. She, I think the, or maybe chapter three, one of the early chapters is on Miss Mary Mack. And I have very, very specific memories of, um, of like cousins, particularly my cousins doing those kinds of hand clapping games. Um, and then all, almost all of those cheers. Exactly. Right. Uh, I mean, there was a weird moment uh, and we'll talk about this as we, we get along in, but, um, when uh, country grammar as a song came out, yeah, and, and yeah. we, you know, uh, at at my almost entirely white, you know, elementary school, had been doing this, uh, the cheer that that song is adapted from as like part of Pee Wee football pep rallies and things like that, right? Um, <laughs> which is an interesting argument, or not argument, but an interesting like piece of information that lives alongside the claims that she is making. Which is one, um, white culture has almost entirely absorbed these, right? And there is yes. an interesting chicken and egg question of um, were these things, as they were adapted in American black culture, were they immediately, you know, absorbed into whiteness, ripped off by white culture, uh, predominantly white culture? Were they uh, later adapted as they got uh, more mainstream? Right, because she talks about that several mm-hmm. times that that these become popular music in the fifties and sixties, um, and so is it a moment of white culture listening to black pop music or early forms of black pop music and then taking them in? Then, um, you know, I I don't know where the point of entry is, but it, it was really interesting to me how much of my own childhood is in this book in a radically different way. Yeah. No, I would say it's it is very interesting because I would say probably most of, I mean I'm sure some of the cheers were just like some cheers that like you know people in my school knew, um, but I also think that a lot of of the way that I absorbed some of this information came from like watching a ton of public television when mm. I was a kid, like lots of Sesame Street, um, you know Barney, right? I'm pretty sure like Miss Mary Mac I would have learned from uh, yeah. like an old Barney yeah. episode, right? So there is. And this is relevant because later on in one of the other chapters, she talks about working for a PBS show. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. There's something there's something else here that's really interesting about about the way that these particular uh, text songs, what have you, are, are circulating in, in like children's media um, and how that in also helps sort of construct race at a very early age, maybe. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And and some at some point here, I have a question written down about uh, that that Gaunt seems uh, unwilling to come down on one side or the other, whether capitalism is parasitic to black culture or culture more generally, mm-hmm. or if it is constitutive of culture more generally. Right? Does it make people or does it steal from people? Um, and there yeah. seem to be different answers at different points in this book, but but I'll pose that when we get to the actual. Uh, think but barney or any of these pbs shows seems to be very operative here uh, as part of that yeah um so yeah uh all that aside right one of the other things she does in this chapter um 
is she does like a very brief kind of historical dig in uh, to talk about like previous um, or older forms of, of African-American music, musical culture. Um, so things like hand boning or uh, juba padding, uh, uh, as she calls it, I've uh, always heard it as juba dancing, but uh, padding here, um, which is kind of, I don't know, how would we describe this? A kind of like social event of semi-improvised sort of song and dance with lots of call and response in in uh, sort of slavery and like post-abolition um, environments. Does that sound yeah, about right? Yeah, that's the, I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, bodily music where the body ends up being the instrument itself is a big part of it. Right, so it puts a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, this isn't a thing that you do by yeah. yourself. Right. This isn't this isn't like one person in a room doing something. This is everyone in this community coming together and learning to to do these routines. Right. Or like taking part in kind of this pastime and uh, everyone right is clapping. Everyone is kind of keeping time or keeping the beat. Um, and she sees uh the girls hand clapping games as in some sense kind of descending from or extracting from this uh they as she puts it um may generate an embodied subjectivity an african-american musical identity that signifies an african sensibility so the the claim being made is that um the african-american sort of musical identity which is uh, fraught for a whole lot of reasons that she gets into, right? Reasons of um, sort of essentialism. Uh, uh, things like, you know, black people just have rhythm. Um, like, that, like they're just good at it. That's just what they do. It's in the genes. Um, and she sort of says no, right? Like, of course not. Uh, there are just loads of sort of social conventions within um, African-American culture, African-American communities where you can learn to do this stuff, right? Um, like, there are places for this to get done. There are places for you to learn how to do it. And that's one of the reason why it's one of the reasons why she argues um, sort of this sense of rhythm gets so uh, associated with an African-American identity and this idea of being able to be in sync with others as you're all doing uh, this particular type of um, musical uh, dancing. So I, I really like the way that you put that or, and, and summarize that because the, the reason that she is so focused on black girl childhood, black girlhood, I guess, is that this is the crucible through which that plays out. Meaning that like this mm -hmm. is the place and the time when young black women have the ability to work on a skill. I mean, the skill of rhythm, right? Because um, the thing that's right after what you just quoted, she says, I, I wrote this quotation down, rhythmic sensibilities are developed and sharpened as part of play, not separate from it. Um, which is kind of her social defense. And this actually pops up at the end of several chapters, kind of her, you know, in, in her conclusions for those chapters. Um, which is that play is good uh games are fine and it's actually probably good for adults to continue to play they're not juvenile because they are methods through which people learn like their place in society right. and how to be a part of a society that has particular ideals or um ways of thinking about rhythm in particular like these things are are not extricable from one another, and it's you know in in the language of say Shira Chess, right? It's a disciplining apparatus. 
it it you know mm-hmm. uh, I think there's probably some really great work to do here although we're, we're obviously not going to do it here but the way of thinking through Shira Chess's idea of designed identity in relationship to the expectations of young black women uh, doing these kinds of games right I mean when when she talks about uh, at some point uh, in these early couple chapters she talks about the cultural capital that gets passed on from black women to black girls when they're taught dances in these types of games and you know that's designed identity just from a different side right not from the side of capitalist right. um, exploitation and accumulation but through you know quite literally the delivering of cultural goods you know your inheritance yeah things like that there are some bits where she talks about uh sort of the patterning of hand clapping games so uh, you know contra the kind of idea that this is like simple child's play and it's just kids doing it which is like kids are doing it right but she 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 sets out to say like by the way this isn't simple and she has some fairly gritty sections where she works through um like the way that the uh clapping patterns in these games will escalate or become sort of like more elaborate as the game goes on and they get really really hard yeah she says uh she specifically says that the way that these games work and and i encourage you like if you hopefully the ebook i know quite a few of our listeners read ebooks i hope that your ebooks have the charts that she has in the book um because she quite literally says, like, look, these games are algorithms, and they proceed algorithmically. They get more complicated, mm-hmm. but they get more complicated in a very specific kind of pattern. Um, and so these charts are, like, her way of lining that out, or, you know, of, of laying that information out in a readable way. And I'll just be honest, like, I cannot make heads or tails of them. <laughs> right. No, I'm sure if you're, if you're like, in music, if you know how to... Uh if you if you understand some of this stuff on a on a much better level, then this probably makes a lot of sense to you visually. But like you know, I stopped. I, I dropped out of band in like ninth grade. So yeah, I just don't know anything about music, as as is probably very <laughs> apparent to people who know about music already in this episode. But but yeah. uh, I, I mean, what I think is really powerful about the book too is that there, uh, if you are interested and very much knowledgeable about music and music theory and about the way that like um i don't know that this stuff if you're if you are knowledgeable about the way that this stuff works in a general sense there's a lot more here for you to pick up than just the argument i mean i guess another thing i'll say uh here is that she there's a quotation that that uh i think is emblematic of some stuff that happens later on in this in the book so the quotation is, it's on page 31, she says, the we, we's in quotation marks, the we, the collective participation of the moment can never be performed if one player is not in sync with the coordinated bodily formulas of the play. Uh, meaning that uh, in these kind of group events like you're talking about, um, the disciplining, she's not using the word discipline, but the disciplining of the individual to bring them in rhythmic accordance and the the play of the group um, gets read repeatedly as like a really positive and, and uh, good social thing. Um, this book never really takes seriously or, or asks itself questions about what kind of effect that that kind of disciplining has on people. And I'm thinking here, uh, especially when she talks about double dutch later, um, that there are non-normative bodies, uh, you know, people who can't walk or people who, um, for 
various reasons don't have access to these uh, modes of play. Mm -hmm. And it is unclear to me how if we if we draw sociality, if, if her argument is that sociality gets drawn out of these practices, it is very unclear to me how people whose bodies don't fit into those practices um, get to be a part of these communities. And obviously they do. But it, it seems to me like there is a a flip side to this, which is that if you can't learn how to get along, then you won't get along. Um, and that's not mm-hmm. that's not. Uh, talked about here in any way so it's just it's an interesting piece that the book isn't particularly concerned about and i don't know if the book has to be concerned about that but that was an open question i had repeatedly here is that if you can't do these things do you get to be part of this rhythmic community yeah no this is something i just i'm I'm gonna go ahead and like foreground this here because otherwise i'll necessarily talk about it later um and I mentioned this to you before when we were off mic, but like there is something really sort of interesting about reading this book, um, just in terms of like being an academic right now, uh, because it came out in 2006 and was sort of written over over the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and so you you talking about uh, the issue of, of bodies here, right, just sort of reminds me that, you know, like this is 2006, so I feel like people were definitely doing disability studies work uh, prior to this, but it feels like, you know, this is, this is just shy of when I feel like, uh, disability studies became like a thing academically when it really started to cohere. Um, and so there's always these odd moments where I I'm looking into the recent academic past and at the same time, it feels so different. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are moments here. There are places where like music theory gets evoked or the absence of music theory gets evoked that I find kind of weird. Yeah. No, the other thing that stepped actually just uh, as another aside, the thing that jumps out at me um, along these similar lines is that there, there are a couple of points in this book where she talks about uh, sampling mm-hmm. um, and sort of remixing and she has to take the time to sort of explain what sampling is. And I feel like if she had just waited two years, like that's all anyone in academia was talking about <laughs> for like a very brief window was like, what does sampling and remix mean for, for our culture? Right. Like that became a thing in like 2000. She, she was ahead of the times. This, this is also, yeah. so I, I was watching uh, one of her Ted talks um, and she said that this book was written for her mother. Which might explain some of the, like, over-explanation that happens in some parts of this book around things like that. She she says, you know, it's written in as public-facing a way as humanly possible. I was going to say, I think this is actually a really great segue into the next chapter. Um, The first chapter is like, this is why I'm studying games and and child music. This is, I mean, the, the what is black music chapter, right? I mean, it yeah. is it is what is blackness in American society, um, and what does it mean to talk about race as attached to a particular cultural form? And so, yeah, she kind of starts this. the The previous chapter ends with this kind of question of strategic essentialism that comes out of uh, Spivak's essay. Can the subaltern speak? Uh, Spivak was uh, specifically writing about French theory in Can the Subaltern Speak? Um, Spivak is writing very specifically about French theory and French theories of power um, and how post-colonial theory can inter- post-colonial theory via deconstruction can intervene in tactical ways in there. And so Spivak floats this idea of strategic essentialism, which is to say that uh, going back into a collective um, 
cultural identity, a racial identity, in order to mount a defense against um, European colonial theory, basically. Um, mm-hmm. People can people can quibble with the definition there, but I, I think that's uh, uh, close enough for our purposes here. And so uh, Gaunt uses that as a way of getting at the question of the necessarily, but sometimes productive and sometimes unproductive ways of talking about race in America and the risks of essentializing blackness, by which she means um, what does talking about african-american identity in america as a as a monolith what does that get you and what does that preclude you know mm-hmm. what, what does that get us as an analytic maneuver what does that keep us from talking about um and so it, it, you know it's kind of a bigger question for her around the question of race race is used as a bludgeon but it is also an analytic for talking about what people of similar ethnicities do and how they live their lives and how they live in the world. And so you have to like strike a balance. And I think she even says, uses the word like razor's edge or something to that effect. There's a balance of uh, analysis that one has to do where uh, the monolith of blackness is useful in some sectors and it's disempowering in others. And so you have to use the specificity of your um, uh, anthropological work, your ethnomusicological work in order to get at the specificity while also holding the, to- the totality uh, in tension. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. But so the, it also means that we have to like, she, she um, uses some like big terms here and cites other people working through them. Um, but I don't know if she works through themselves through these issues herself. So like the word phenomenology, social phenomenology keeps showing up here. Michael, what, what's, what's phenomenology, Michael? (sighs) (laughs) Um, phenomenology is, uh, the strain of, philosophy slash kind of critical method or critical stance, right? Um, That is very concerned with how reality or the experience of reality is processed by the human consciousness. Um, This comes out of, I would say, like, it it starts in France, doesn't it? Is it like pre-war France? Well, we get Husserl, right? Yeah, all the way so. back in the in the 19th century, and then and then That's yeah, true. you get yes. I mean uh, popularized yes. by uh, Merleau-Ponty. Yeah. So yes, yes, yes. So that's that's uh, phenomenology. Does that does that please you? Or are you pleased? I'm pleased, Michael. <laughs> okay, good, good. By saying social phenomenology, right? She is saying the ways in which groups of people, as a collective, experience the world, right? Um, and yes. so then therefore it, we, we have to, and, or, and she needs us to get to a question of what does that mean for people who are black, who are African-American, I mean, specifically African-American, right? Not Afro-Caribbean, yes. uh, not African diasporic. And so what's interesting to me is this question gets kind of, um, the, the initial wedge to, to work at the question comes from the American Anthropological Society mm-hmm. um, talking about race, 
So what she says, I'm going to quote this, race as debunked by the American Anthropological Association is not a biologically determined marker of differences in intellect, power, musical expression, and uh, sexual appetite. Yes, yet any use of the term like musical blackness tends to call up the notion of racist skin color rather than standing as a vernacular code uh, for ethnicity among certain groups of people of African descent in the United States. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's a very quick and easy, like, I don't disagree with, with the way that race just kind of gets, um, like, using using the anthropological society to, like, sort of debunk race in, in kind of its more traditional or reactionary sense. Um, but it is, it's like, it happens so fast. And I feel like normally you need a couple of uh, paragraphs of working through, like, you know, this, this all, all this obliterated, right? Here is what race is going to mean in this instance, in this book for me. I guess it allows you to construct race from your examples. Um, you know, it allows you to do the bottom up approach of saying, well, the thing I'm talking about is the thing I'm talking about in specific. It is not any of the generalities here. But then I wonder, does like an ethnicity that is shared from people in America from the who come from southern states ostensibly through the legacy of slavery is that any different than saying the word race right or if it's just you know the, what Fanon called the uh, the epidermalization of race right it is not the epidermalized uh, issue of race it is the sociological uh, use of race or something like that right so Oh, I was going to say, she just has this sort of later quote. Um, My stance is that musical blackness is a culturally transmitted set of practices, communications, and traditions where embodied language and orality, uh, kinetic orality, play a significant role in the social construction and knowledge of being African-American in a sphere of culture and identifications that is dominated by music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sounds good. But so that's the the kind of uh, delimited sphere right of of right. uh when race and blackness show up blackness in particular show up in this book this is kind of the the way that they're going to show up and she specifically is grounding this in as a way of giving herself access to both the particular and the general in the general um there's some interesting moments here at the back half of the chapter where she's kind of legitimating her project and you know demonstrating why it's necessary the stuff that we're trained to do as academics in general and so the first one is is interesting to me because it's yet another example in a long line of examples uh of people talking about how theory is bad (laughs) which we've encountered now several times in these game studies books um and you know if there's a thing that michael and i like it's theory (laughs) so we we might be the problem um but yeah she says uh on page 45 she says quote the emerging deconstructive anti-essentialist climate of u.s academic discourse in the early 1990s that's that's the quote um and basically she's saying you know it, it is um i think probably frustrating to run into theory bros at conferences um that that are looking for allegiances to things that have nothing to do with what your research actually is. Right. And I also think for, um, a lot of people, um, especially if, if they are not themselves theory bros, uh, it can be very tiresome to, for instance, right. Be writing up, writing a dissertation or writing a book about, 
basically that the fact that black identity is real, yeah. right? That it's real and it matters. Um, and uh, sort of get hit with some sloppy readings of, of people coming in with like, you know, Foucault or Deleuze and Guattari or something and being like, guess what? Subjectivity never existed. Yeah. Like there is no subject. Everything is like, there was no individual um, when like really like at their best, what those theorists are doing is saying like this thing that white men have made up in order to exploit and oppress other people was never there to begin with. Um, but this sort of like gets, used as a as a cudgel to be like well you're talking you're you're like bringing the subject back into this and we've already established that the subject doesn't exist um i'm sure that sort of thing like happens and i know just even sort of rhetorically it can sound like well you know wait a minute why are we going around you know exploding the subject when lots of people never got to be subjects to begin with yeah 100 percent. and i i think that that's uh a million percent the read of the situation um which I, I, which I agree with, right? And I kind of wish that there was more uh, of an engagement with people like Cornell West, in particular, in this book. I was, yeah, Cornell West has definitely got stuff to say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's the who you know someone I would point to as, although maybe not now, certainly at at this point, the bridge between a critique of the subject or a critique of um, the Enlightenment figure, right? Capital M Man, um, a critique of that figure via uh you know american blackness in particular and what i think is really interesting about this book is that it really is um doing a lot of the same analysis that people who are critiquing the subject and individuality and the liberal subject all those different things um is doing a lot of similar analysis that they do to get to their point and she's just not interested in going there right she's not interested in a critique of western metaphysics you know uh probably it's probably uh not a good use of your time in a general sense right um, <laughs> but it's gonna say it doesn't yeah yeah um this, this book does not need the critique of the critique of plato no uh, um, it, it doesn't um but but what is interesting to me is that by not focusing on that or, or not taking those kind of additional layers of criticism into account i think that a different kind of book gets produced um so she says on page 47, she says that there is a, quote, vacuum in our discourse about African-American musical identity, unquote. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where I think that that a um, not even an investment, just an engagement with black studies at the time, like specifically theories of blackness at the time in the early 2000s could be really interesting and productive. And I, I really hope that either someone has written this or will write it. Um, but I immediately thought, well, there, you know, I know of things from that time period that are about, you know, African-American musical identity, but they staged that debate or that question or that analysis in almost purely theoretical terms about the question of a, what is blackness in a, in a, mm-hmm. a ontological sense or uh, B, what does it mean to be part of the project of American liberalism and yet still be black, right? Which which right. is fundamentally excluded most of the time from that project of liberalism. So I'm thinking of things like Fred Moten's In the Break, which is about the black radical tradition and jazz and aesthetics. Um, I'm thinking of Kimberly Benston's Performing Blackness 
which is another book that's kind of about jazz and it's about the operations of race in music. But again, these are the, the closest alliance with Gaunt is going to be performance studies. And that, of course, is not music studies. Um, and I get that. Mm-hmm. But, I, I, you know, I, part of me reading this book just thought, ah, oh, just one chapter that's that's uh, about the intersection of these things would be so great. Because yeah. there's there's so much shared stuff. I mean, she even quotes Amiri Baraka multiple times. And In the Break is all about Amiri Baraka, or the kind of central object of that book, is about the Burton Green affair. When Amiri Baraka says oh. that jazz music is, in fact, like a black energetics, and it is black experience, and white people just can't do it. <laughs> that, that white people don't understand how jazz operates because they don't have the fundamental social experience of being black um, and being attached to the legacy of blackness in America. And that, and that seems huh. to be operative for the kind of claims that, yeah. that Gaunt is making. Um, yeah, no, I think I think that like actually folds very neatly into into her project uh, here. So I don't know. Interesting. In any case, so uh, this actually touches on just one other thing, I guess, to pull out of this chapter. Um, if only because it was it was interesting. I I don't know what made this interesting. Maybe because it was another one of those things that sort of instantly dated this book, but like in a way that felt very uncanny because it was basically like my adolescence, (laughs) right? When she was talking about uh, like the rise of MP3s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is part of, so to actually contextualize, like one of the things she is pointing out here uh, with regard to uh, like, for instance, what you just mentioned with jazz, right? Is, is the, the tendency for just dang old white Americans like us to uh, steal black people's popular music. (laughs) Like this, this weird thing that just keeps happening all the time. Um, And she talks about uh, sort of how recording technologies uh, can be seen as ways of disembodying music, right? It can be pulled out of uh, sort of the context of the person singing it, performing it, dancing it. and, And it just becomes like, this thing you can hear, right? It's like pure sound. Um, and she says that this sort of uh, aids in in the process of like white folks appropriating um, essentially black aesthetics. Uh, and she says that with th- sort of the rise of, of downloadable music and MP3s where you don't even have like an album in your hands, um, this is only going to get worse. Yeah. I, I don't, and, and she says that, you know, this is an operative conversation for her because often in her classrooms and, and anyone who's ever taught around race uh, is going to be familiar with this kind of classroom discussion. But I mean, in our contemporary form, it's who gets to do rap music, right? Um, right. Or, and, you know, maybe that's been that question for the past 20 years or so, but it is what, what allows someone to participate uh, most fully or or legitimately maybe in a, what is traditionally a black musical form and uh, and so she says like the problem is accelerated specifically by iPods um, yeah. and I don't know I don't it, she, I don't think she answers this question uh, actually yeah. I mean she states it as a problem um, but it doesn't it, to my memory it doesn't come back through the rest of the book yeah no it's it doesn't and it's it was an interesting moment and one of the things you put in your notes is I don't remember how you phrased this but it was something like has social media did you say reignited oh reinitialized I think is what I read reinitialized yeah, yeah. Um, oh yes you know you did write reinitialized so I don't know what you mean by that <laughs> but <laughs> It did strike me as sort of interesting because um, really what we have seen happen is like 
sort of the growth of personalities, yeah. right? Yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like, uh, yeah. So, um, like, really what social media has done, right, is allowed us to all participate in, in these musical artists' feuds. Yes. <laughs> and, and that, in some ways, has, like, actually reinserted them, I feel, like, back into their music. Yeah, game. 100%. That, that there is a... Um, in in the most broad popular music, right? I, I think that this gets um, the question of who gets to to do this X type of music is one that media outlets are invested in, and there it's a thing that like social media people are invested in, and so because of that, I think we have maybe more productive conversations about it. So yeah, those are kind of uh, the method. Uh, and close the closest we get to kind of theory chapters um and then the next one we start in on like straight up just looking at hand clapping games and kind of the the scene of the hand clapping game we might say how these things operate um and how how girls interact with one another uh in these spaces actually one other thing just to mention right is uh she points out that uh, a lot of the discourse around music, um, especially from black artists, is going to focus on uh, like genres that are stereotypically male-dominated, like rap yeah. and hip-hop, right? So um, she is absolutely looking for uh, gender here, right? Places where girls and women um, participate uh, in, in this musical scene. Uh, so, yeah. Then we move into chapter three, Mary Mack dressed in black, the earliest formation of a popular music. Yeah. And it, this is kind of, this is the example that we were talking about uh, earlier yeah. um, of, of something that is kind of broadly familiar, I think maybe in American culture, uh, but has very sp- specific and particular use. Um, and I, and I use use uh, as, as, as a verb here uh, for a reason, because I mean, for, for Gaunt, this has a educational, cultural use. Like, hand-clapping games do things to people. I thought it was uh, really interesting. Um, this is, the, I mentioned, like, at, at the, in the end of the chapter, she talks about sort of uh, the way that the image of, like, the... Basically, right, there's, this is, she's correct, right, this is sort of baked, I think, into the American popular consciousness at this point, right, but sort of the, the image of, like, two young black girls on a city street doing a hand-clapping game, um, and how this kind of comes to signify a whole lot of things for a whole lot of people, um, especially as it kind of, like, gets used in, uh, like, children's public television, things like Sesame Street and Between the Lions, which is a show that she works on later, mm-hmm. uh, but um, what she wants to do is kind of, you know, s- like, stop for this just being kind of like a symbol. Like, let's figure out what's happening with these girls. What's going on with them? What are they learning about themselves? Um, you know, what are they learning about the world around them? Uh, so she says, you know, these embodied games socialize girls into behaviors, tropes of feeling, soul, rhythmic complexity, and group identification, and musical interaction, mirroring a hip gyration across from a partner, that shape communal interpretations of race and gender roles in musical and non-musical contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the body becomes uh, kind of her grounding point for here. Here, She calls the body a type of technology. Uh, that is integral for these young girls learning to be musically black. 
And then this, of course, is this is the thing that gets naturalized in in uh, racist and essentialist notions uh, of that sort of thing, right? That um, oh, you know, black people are just really good at music and rhythm. And she's saying like, no, actually, like these girls are spending hours upon hours playing and practicing. Yeah, yeah, a million percent. And and what I think is interesting too is that this is the the place where the word word rules shows up, like like a game rule. Uh, shows up, I think, for the first time in the book. Uh, this is the first time that I wrote it down, uh, which is interesting. So, you know, the thing that gets naturalized is the the tonality of the song, um, the way that the pitch of the song moves up and down as you're clapping and as the speed uh, increases and decreases, all these different things. And she talks about those things as, like, the parameters through which this type of game gets deployed. I, I don't know that there's like a finite number of ways that you will approach someone else to play this type of game. And you both know through various experiences beforehand, uh, whatever, uh, that this is the way the game is going to play out in a general type of way, which allows for the kind of algorithmic progression that she was talking about a couple chapters ago to actually play out because you both come, even if the specific words or the specific pronunciations might be different between the two of you, but the algorithmic progression will function in such a similar way that you can be, um, uh, I don't know, brought into the game more quickly. And, and so I, it, that made me think about uh, uh, Mimesis in Kalwa. Hmm. Um, that these are games that are about mimetic, the mimetic faculty. That you can look right. at someone else and begin to replicate what they are doing and then input that information into your own body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is interesting is that I think that that then, like, flips, uh, like, the Aegon, Aaliyah hierarchy, for lack of a better term, right? Where Aegon is always going to be on top of Kalwa. I think that if we look at this as the valorized form of gameplay, if Mimesis is the valorized form of gameplay, then it requires us to, like, rethink a lot of different things that Kalwa is kind of serving up without criticism in game right. studies in particular. And it's interesting too because like the the escalation that is central to to some of these games, right? They get faster, like they get more complicated. That algorithmic progression makes them more difficult because you are doing those with your body, though, right? This this evokes a lot of the ways that he talks about. Um, oh hell, what does he call it? Uh, 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 the whirlpool, the one that's like total disorientation. Oh, I like explains. Eye links, yes. The one, the one that explains why ants love to get drunk. Yeah. Um, no, no. So it, it, it almost seems like it would head in that direction. But that's like, again, like, you know, Cal was wrong, right? Like, that is not really the point here. The point is to escalate in, in kind of this way to get sort of um, as vertiginous as you can. And that becomes like the, the agonistic component of this is like you and your partner uh I don't know, like racing against the the fact that your own bodies are eventually going to make some sort of mistake. <laughs> well, I so so that is why I think that this is a productive way of of kind of upending the Kawa is I don't think that it gets to that point. And I think that she that Gaunt is very careful to talk about that. That a moment of of if we were to apply Kawa to this, right, we would say right. that at the end of the day someone loses this game because their body can't keep 
keep up fast enough, right? Right. But Gaunt is very careful, and right, she's not engaging with Kalwa at all, but she still gets to this point of saying that when a player gets to a fail state where they don't where they can't continue to play anymore, they it is a moment of reflection. It's a moment of uh, of other people in the group asking what happened or maybe, you know, making fun of them a little bit. But ultimately, it is an opportunity to get back into the game to continue it going on for the group. So the whole group can continue to play. And if they're not doing, and this is this comes up with Double Dutch later, but if they can't, you know, skip fast enough or whatever, then they still become part of the social group that's doing the singing or whatever. Um, and so, it, weirdly enough, it's like, the mimetic faculty that Kawa is talking about, but without the final decision point of Aegon, like that never mm-hmm. appears in these games. It is just about, can you be part of the social group? And if you can't do the specific actions, that's okay because you can still be part of uh, the social apparatus that keeps the game going. And there's right, like, there are, yeah, there are other things for you to do. Exactly. Uh, if you, yeah, like you are still valuable in the social group. Right. Even if, if you, you can't, can't, if you can't jump, maybe you can spin the rope, that sort of thing. A hundred percent or just sing or just like clap or yeah. things like that. And yeah. so, you know, at the beginning of this, when I said, you know, taking this book and, you know, using it to kind of put the screws to Kawa to some degree, I think that's one of them. The colonial trap of Kawa, right? Mm-hmm. That the like dominance of European rationalist man would be to say that these games never get to Aegon. And so then therefore they aren't really games. And right. therefore, that the culture that has produced them is insufficient. Right. These these girls aren't good enough at invent at inventing liberal democracy on their own. Yes. Uh, I'm. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. I mean, that, you can see the what, what I what I find so productive about reading these books in sequence is that you can see the lure of Kalwa here of of mm-hmm. the reading of the game as being like, well, there's no winner and there's no loser, so it's an unproductive game. Um, and if it's unproductive, then that means that it doesn't have the kind of mastery of time and space that we associate with Aegon and Aaliyah to some extent. And so then, therefore, uh, hmm, I guess it's just like Mimesis and Ilinx. But in fact, Mimesis and Ilinx are being valorized as social activities that produce... Um, I mean, you know, if Gaunt is right, that produces black sociality in the United States, right? Um, which, which I think is an incredibly valuable insight. I, I mean, yeah. I think I think that the and it's all afforded by the kind of bottom up approach of, yes. of the book. Yes, and that becomes actually very relevant um, near the end of the chapter, right? Because she, um, this is this is when she starts talking about she was working as like a creative consultant or something. Uh, for a PBS kids show called Between the Lions, which I actually remember having having watched, um, so that was weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they wanted to record some uh, young girls doing cheers, uh, and they were making like they were writing the cheers for them because they they wanted they wanted to have so the show wanted to have this segment with like a bunch of young black girls like doing cheers, um, and they also wanted to make them educational. Uh, in like sort of the traditional sense, right? Traditional in the public television sense, uh, and you know the th- the thing of it is like most of these cheers, the lyrics themselves are not like lessons about the solar system or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> whatever it is, yeah, you know, whatever, yeah, whatever it is, you you like want from your educational public television, like it's not going to be like facts about history or something. Um, mm-hmm. 
So they make up cheers for these girls to do. Um, and, like, they suck. <laughs> <laughs> like, it is just a disaster. Uh, she, I, she just doesn't, like, it, the whole thing just feels so artificial. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, partially, and it doesn't, it doesn't play out necessarily right here. Um, so on one, it feels artificial because she argues that these cheers and just general, uh, the, the places where rhymes show up across all these different games, they're about black women, young black women becoming acculturated. And so they're sexual. I mean, they're, they're about like the world you live in and their kids games. So of course it comes out in games. (laughs) Right. <laughs> and so, like, a couple of the rhymes that, or the cheers that she writes out, I mean, they're just explicitly sexual, and they and they get to the point of, like, a sexual pun, and then they revert it, you know, by saying, right, like, right, a, right. Uh, I forget what the exact one she writes is, oh, but it's, it's very the, funny. The version that I always knew was, um, behind the elevator, she found a piece of glass, she bent down to pick it up, and fell right on her, ask me no more questions, I'll yes. tell you no more lies, yes. right? Um and then there are others that are like more more obviously like sexual. So yeah, no, that's this is one of the problems that they have, right? Is that these these uh, cheers as they sort of naturally occur have no filter, and they are they are grotesque and vulgar and funny in the ways that children are grotesque and vulgar and funny. Yeah, uh, but not necessarily appropriate for public television for teaching you uh, your ABCs or something. <laughs> yep. Um, so no, it's it's good. Uh, yeah, so uh, she is working on this show, and she basically just talks about how, you know, one of the reasons this doesn't work, right, this top-down implementation doesn't work, is because uh, it isn't built out of out of that experience of, like, or rather, like, the way we understand these things working, right, what makes these things what they are to us as, as uh, a culture, uh, you know, popularly speaking, but also, you know, especially to um, African-American people, is the fact that these are things that come up out of the culture and they interact with aspects of uh, like black culture that gets reflected in in popular media or rather like broad broad strokes popular media because this is also where she first mentions that um, one of the Cheers samples uh, Michael Jackson's Rock and Robin. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's like a give and take with the with the actual larger commercial culture where these Cheers will incorporate. Um, pieces of known songs, but then put them to different ends. Yes, and this is another instance where I think that the relationship between capitalism and the social, uh, you know, why is it that children incorporate popular music into this, right? And it is it just because children are absorptive machines, you know, and that's what they do, and they take parts of the world and, and fold them into their life, or is it that capitalism has so fully determined the types of experiences that they can have that although they have like social games that are not fully um, locked in with capitalism they can't help but pull all the pieces that they have from it so what you really get is this weird kind of pseudo reflection within Mm -hmm. a different form but the content is the same Um, I mean the same question appeared for me later um, around uh, Planet Rock 
uh, oh yeah, where comes up at the very end, yeah, where the woman doesn't know she is delivering one of these songs that she knows from her childhood and does not know that she is just repeating the opening of Planet Rock by Africa Bambata. Yeah. Um, and it's this it's presented as this weird moment of like, well, gosh, how could she not know? But the reason is is that the the aesthetic space around her is completely overdetermined by popular music and so then therefore she can't help but absorb that into her life right um right. and so when we begin to pose the question of how do these children's games get absorbed into stuff like um uh, like country grammar which is in, in the, the next chapter really to me that's a question of how is how are children's games filters for the the monoculture pop culture to just represent itself to children and then recycle itself up through the ground you know it's kind of like the mm-hmm. water cycle for right. <laughs> for musical influence which is bizarre and i've never seen any kind of articulation like this before like the kind of analysis that that gaunt is doing but approaching all these different examples from a different angle it, it, it leaves me with a lot of like you know weird questions questions she's not responsible for answering by any means right but but big questions for me nonetheless right so i mean the the next chapter is a good place to talk about those uh weird questions because as you already said this is the this is the chapter about nelly's country grammar mm-hmm. uh, it's called saw you with your boyfriend music between the sexes uh this is the chapter that made me like die and crumble to dust, right? Because because I was like, oh yeah, Nelly's country grammar. I remember when everyone was into that song in like middle school, and I was like, oh my god, I'm thirty years old. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. I thought about my mortality, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, no. So uh, Nelly's country grammar. If 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 you're listening and you haven't heard it. Uh, it takes one of these cheer songs um, and, well, masculinizes it is, is a way that uh, we could we could describe it. Um, it's the one, like, so if you know the, the cheer song, it's uh, down, down, baby, down the roller coaster, uh, sweet, sweet baby, it's at I'll never let you go, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Nelly makes this into... Uh, his his rap song about driving is it driving a Hummer a Humvee? I don't I don't know. You're asking anyway, me like about the thematics of country grammar? Yeah, I don't. Anyway, anyway, right? Like <laughs> Nelly takes this song and he's like, guess what? This song is no longer about going down a roller coaster. It's about me driving down the street in my kick-ass car, and uh, we're gonna get blazed. Um, mm-hmm. So, and this song was, like, everywhere back in the, like, mid-2000s, at least for me. I don't know about you. Oh, absolutely. It was everywhere. Okay. Uh, it's, okay, it's also in a, sure. It's in a Range Rover. Oh, it's a Range Rover. That's it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that is basically the... That's basically... This song is so much longer than I remember it being. <laughs> yeah, no, I went back. So, one of the best things, actually, about reading this book is that, like, I kept, like, going and, like, listening to music. <laughs> in order to heighten my appreciation of the chapters and yes no i 
really misremembered uh, country grammar, how long it was. That's kind so. of, I mean, this this chapter is, is um, as we've talked about already, the book is kind of broadly about some different things, right? It is about this kind of circuit of culture that has to do with uh, black girls and the games that they play and how that has to do with culture more broadly. It has to do with how music creates people and people in a culture. And it has to do with how women um, abandon these games and like what are the mechan- mechanics of abandonment and and uh, reclamation that happen. That's kind of like the end of the book. We have this kind of argument plank in the, in the introduction that was about how traditionally masculine or, or, or uh, modes of black American music that are understood to be masculine often go to uh, the songs from black girls and then absorb them and change them and do stuff with them or their form or their rhythms or the kind of content they're interested in and then transform them into popular music. Um, And that is ostensibly what is happening in this chapter. This is an outline of that argument. Um, This in the next chapter. But I'll be honest in saying that I don't really understand how this argument moves. Other than to say that obviously Nelly is taking from a broad cultural form that is feminized, that is uh, raced, that comes from a particular location. But I didn't get a sense of the mechanical changes that happen to it other than the mechanical changes of sampling by themselves, which are to say you just rip out a rhythmic form out of a pre-existing piece of material and you jam it in and you've created a, a rap song. Do you, do you have a better sense of, like, the actual mechanics of how this happens? Your sort of question, right, is, like, how is how is this different from just kind of, like, sampling? Um, I know one of the things that seems to make a lot of difference for Gaunt is the fact that girls' songs, uh, these cheers, are sort of considered public domain. So they are taking, you know, bits of this cultural form, but then they're sort of selling it back to, as she would, like, they're, they're selling these rhymes back to the people who have um, sort of produced them and sustained them. Um, and this goes back, like, this isn't just, you know, like, contemporary rap or hip-hop doing this, right? She talks about how this happens in sort of the 40s and the 50s. Uh, but the other thing that seems to happen uh, specifically, like, in this Nelly example, right, is... All of the all of the stuff we talked about at the end of the last chapter, the the weird, grotesque, vulgar stuff that can show up in in these children's songs, um, like it's not recognized as being like sufficiently adult, uh, and so instead, uh, so the the specific cheer, right, uh, shimmy shimmy cocoa pop, um, it uh, has a particular line in it that so there's a, a like a whole body kind of repertoire that happens at about the middle of this cheer, um, where it's like, let's get the rhythm of the head, ding dong. And usually as, as I've seen it performed, right? Like there are movements that go along with the specific body parts, um, during, during this section. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the final one, it goes like head, hands, feet. Um, and then it says, let's get the rhythm of the hot dog. Um, but hot dog is, uh, said as like hot dog, uh, which sounds really weird to just say without the accompanying visual, because what you're supposed to do is kind of like gyrate your hips and move like the sound in your mouth in in sequence or like in sync with the way that you are drawing out the hot dog sound. Mm-hmm. So Gaunt points out that uh, one of the things that is happening here is that this is a sex joke. Um, 
this is like a children's sex joke uh, where the hot dog is kind of like this very, very thinly failed, uh, veiled uh, reference to the penis and like the movement of the hips is kind of, you know, in, intended to uh, recall the sexual act or whatever. So this is this is scandalous, right? For people who, who see this and know what it is, it is scandalous. Um, but for Nellie... Like Nelly can't say, "Let's get the rhythm of the hot dog and <laughs> and, and shake his hips," right? Like yeah. that's not what he can do. So he has to say, um, "I'm coming down, down, baby. Your street in a Range Rover, street sweeper, baby, cocked, ready to let it go." Uh, so he has to he has to you know turn the hot dog penis into a gun penis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. There is, uh, he like, re- I think one of the, I think maybe one of the words that she uses is like recoding, right? He takes um, a lot of elements that are present in the original cheer, uh, but then he has to recode them into a stance that's sort of more traditionally sexual, aggressive, masculine, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, and one of the things that I guess she sort of suggests, and we obviously can't know this, right? We don't know what's going through Nellie's head or any of the other um, producers who she mentions, um, is uh, this idea that these men are taking things that they remember, like, girls in their neighborhood doing, right? Their little sisters, or just, like, things that girls do, and doing something kind of, uh, you know, dangerous with them, something a little... A little uh, uh, suggestive, right? And what she's saying is that these guys are missing missing the forest for the trees, right? Like, by rewriting these uh, songs in this way, they are sort of willfully or, you know, unwillfully ignoring, like, how, how girls are already sort of violent and sexual, and, like, how all of this stuff gets uh, sublimated into these songs. Mm-hmm. What is interesting to me, though, is that this is specifically presented as an argument that's kind of about like how popular music I don't know is is adopting and borrowing and all these different things that you're talking about but but is I, I don't I, I don't understand the mechanism maybe maybe that, that that's my problem here these things all like definitely are happening I think mm-hmm. maybe I would have liked to see two more examples of how this works that weren't so right. on the nose Right. Okay. Because I'm just confused about like how I I 100% this is happening historically when she talks about the historical examples. Obviously that is occurring, but I'm interested in in thinking through like how does this happen with trap music? If if Nelly is part of an ascendant realm of hip hop production that maybe ends in like a Kanye album, <laughs> just mm-hmm. any of them, or like a Jay Z album, right? Of like really clean. Uh, expansive, expensive production value um, that yeah. certainly is borrowing very tactically from a lot of different places, including uh, young black girls' music. Then, where is is it a universal process? Is it happening all the time in all instances of popular music, which seems to be what's being suggested about the 20th century? Is there a place where it jumps out? I yeah, I, just, I have problems. Um, seeing how the argument moves into examples beyond the ones that have already occurred, right? Because if if this is what's happening, then it's a predictive model for how the relationship between pop music and black girls' music or black girls' games work. Mm-hmm. 
I I don't know. Maybe that is like a weird critique. And I don't even mean it as a critique. I just, uh, I don't know how it moves as an argument. I would say, yeah, no. I mean, I think that's somewhat justified because she also says, so the other thing to point out, right, is that this is, as she presents it, primarily a thing that um, male artists are doing. Yeah. Um, and she says female uh, artists working in these genres seem to avoid calling back to their own childhood games. And that seems significant to her. Yeah. Um, and I argue it would be. Uh, but also, like, I don't know enough of the music to know actually how accurate that is. Um, just because... And also, I feel like if if this were going to happen, if female artists were going to do it, like, it, it would probably have happened between 2006 and now. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean for this argument? Um, and then I also... She happens to mention, like... Uh, Shirley Ellis, um, who did the name game, um, and she says that you know, like this song, right? It, it like the the interesting thing about Shirley, Shirley Ellis's song, the name name game, is that it sounds a lot like a children's clapping game, um, but it was not right. It was sort of invented, and this is the one that, uh, if you're not familiar with it, um, is you take someone's name and you just make a bunch of rhyming nonsense words building off of it. So like Cameron. Bo Bamron, me, my, Bo Mamron, Cameron, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's true, right? But Shirley Ellis also had a song called The Clapping Song uh, that was released shortly thereafter. And I know this because I like Shirley Ellis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but The Clapping Song is a clapping game, right? Um, and so I think it's interesting, right, that she mentions, uh, that she'll mention, you know, this one Shirley Ellis song, The Name Game, which I think is probably definitely her most famous one, but then also the fact that she had a follow-up single that was explicitly, like, a clapping game song called The Clapping Game and hmm. was based on um, on one of these chants. That's interesting, because the other example that she uses, too, is Missy Elliott. Um, mm-hmm. That Missy Elliott has a song that one would think is borrowing from a real song, but is in fact not. It's only borrowing... Uh, the form or the mechanism, which I, I think, you know, presents an interesting question for the whole thing, which is maybe what the women in these fields are doing is taking the form and adapting it to pop music rather than ripping off direct music. Um, right. I was going to say that was, and that's the other thing, right? Is like maybe this influences their songwriting in ways that are beyond the level of lyrics, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, so, so this is a, this is maybe a good lead into the next chapter, which is similarly uh, an analysis of how these things feed into a masculinizing uh, process, particularly when it comes to to not just any type of music or any type of popular music, but rap in particular. Um, which allowed me to realize that Ghostface Killer made a self help DVD. That yes, no, I was. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I was not expecting this kind of, like, it's very just all of a sudden, it's like, while watching Ghostface kill his self-help DVD. And, and the information, what I what I love is that, oh gosh, where, where is it? It's on page 115 if people, if people at home want to look at it. The quotation from Ghostface Killer, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot of John Maddenisms, which it is statements yeah. about how rap works that are tautologies. 
But it's, yeah. he basically is just saying repeatedly, yeah, uh, the rap game is the rap game. And sometimes good stuff happens and sometimes bad yeah. stuff happens. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I mean, just the first two sentences, right? When you come into this game, it's like a whole nother world. You know what I mean? It's just like on the block, like on a bigger level. Yeah. So it's exactly the same thing that you know, except it's completely different. <laughs> and it's just like the tiny thing that you're familiar with, except it's infinitely larger. <laughs> It's so good. Gosh, that is good. He is, he is, um, what an amazing guy. And it, yeah, I, uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, like, rap reps hard. Like all other businesses, it's very difficult. And, um, it, this chapter, I, I mean, this, this chapter is, uh, the aged up version of the previous argument, which is to say that black women feed into a economic system and into musical forms that ultimately minimize their presence within them. Yes. And dot, 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 question mark. Yeah, this chapter actually, I would say, is the one that I felt um, most like it didn't come together in the end. Um, if only because one of the things that she does at the beginning of the chapter that I really like is she outlines how much how 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 many different things game means yeah. in this context yeah. right it is so incredibly polyvalent polyvalent right it is it is a sexual metaphor right but it is also a descriptor of talent or excellence um especially with regard to competition um but then there's also like this connected idea of of uh the player right the person who has a lot of game um so there's something sort of really interesting uh, to be parsed out here about like what game really means in this context, or rather like not not what it means, not what it really means, but um, what what conceptual work is is the notion of game doing here? Um, but it also kind of drops it by the end. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the argument that carries through the whole thing is. I mean, I wrote down this quotation that's toward the end of the chapter. She says, um. Well, uh, so maybe this is where like the lever is right she says quote females are actually attracted to their own sphere of musical practice sub- subverted within hip-hop practice so it's kind of a continuation of the uh, the previous argument where she is saying the reason that women are invested in hip-hop as a form is in fact because they are seeing the re-articulation of games that they are very familiar with just being represented to them through men singing them basically that's true, right? Okay, yeah. And she does also, this is where I think she quotes, um, basically, uh, she quotes, I think, a couple of people, um, a couple of women, who specifically say that, like, they don't really care about lyrics. <laughs> yes. Um, they're they're there for dance beats. Yeah, yeah. She, she quotes uh, an MTV VJ. <laughs> okay. Uh, or one of the hosts of Yo! MTV Raps, I think, um, who is talking about that. Uh, it's like the horizontal fantasy. Yeah. Dance is the vertical version of a horizontal fantasy or something like that. Yes, yes, I didn't yes. write it down. but um, Which, yeah, I, I, that seems to check out to me. Um, um, I don't know. What, what's interesting to me is, like, A, I agree. I don't know if the chapter comes together. I don't know what the so what is here. Um, other than it is just a proof of the, the kind of... Uh, like laundering of of black girls games that happens in popular uh, media i don't know 
I, I, I think the reason this chapter exists is she is trying to get to, she's trying to make an argument about the femaleness of these games. All right. Because at the very beginning of the chapter, I wrote this quotation down. She says, quote, there is nothing inherently sexual about changing words, improving melodies and rhythms or making beats. Right. So, so these things are not are tied to particular um, forms of being in the world. Um, right. And yet, clearly, from the five preceding chapters, they are in fact, tied to those things. And so when do those get abstracted away from bodies and when do they get re-articulated on bodies? And so they're abstracted in the moment of uh, their diffraction into the game and then they are re-articulated on the dance floor or in through the, the, the boom box or whatever. Um, which, okay, cool. I, I mean, I think that the, the output at the end has something to do with resistance or subversion right i mean she's using that Mm -hmm. word uh, subverted but i think that um the the kind of like blanket cultural studies stuart hallism of subversion as uh, a politics in and of itself doesn't Mm -hmm. you know you know and it has to do with when i went to graduate school right and the kind of in the kind of hangover of of the 20 years of that kind of cultural studies production but that just doesn't seem sufficient um as an analysis anymore uh and i'm sure that she has i mean you know she's updated this argument several times it seems like across several different talks so i'm sure that she has um different ways of talking through this argument now but right but yeah yeah, no, I mean, I think just to recall back to a recurring point here, right, that one of the one of the things that's probably missing here is is a systemic investigation of capitalism. Yeah. In the music industry, specifically. So 100 percent. Yeah, I mean, I think that and that I mean, it's a hard problem, too, because I agree 100 percent. It's also I get it's not the book. So why would right. you do that? Um, but yeah, showing me the lines of like here are 10 different songs that have explicit borrowings from uh, black girls songs. Here is their charting potential. Here's where they came from. Here's the production team. Like those kinds of data points, I think would be very, very compelling to talk about the way that these songs circulate within this particular Mm -hmm. segment of culture. And I mean, that's not what the book is about. So I, you know, I I don't wonder if we're not doing it, but I, I would be very interested in that. Um, and then, I don't know. I guess that's that's that. Because then the next two chapters are the ones about Double Dutch. Double Dutch. Where, double Dutch. And as we've already said, these are the chapters where it gets probably most most closely aligned with, with traditional game studies. Because if we did game studies the way that the previous chapters did their work, game studies would look very, very different. Yes. <laughs> um, in fact, Cameron, what might it look like? I mean, if we did it the way that the previous chapters did, A, we would, talking about, instead of winners and losers and rule sets in particular, we would be talking about aesthetic similarities um, and the valorization of aesthetic similarities. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we're winning and losing StarCraft or that StarCraft produces winners and losers or that games have win states and, and losing states, but rather that games do particular cultural work um that allows for like not just self-advancement and self I, I hesitate to use the word uplift but like self-valorization 
um, but also social valoration, telling you uh, where you exist in that society. Mm. And I guess maybe like there's a branch of game studies that does do this, of course. Like I'm, I'm not saying that people don't, but Jesper Yule is not invested in this kind of question. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, Espen Arseth, that kind of set, whatever those are, whatever that set is in game studies. But if you go back and you look at, you know, even uh, Geertz on Balinese cockfighting, right? Like, that that's what that's all about. That's what anthropological work here is all about. Um, yeah. And so it, I guess it's interesting, maybe... I mean, maybe I'm not saying anything that is uh, super surprising, but if game studies had an anthropological bent to it, it would look to specific use cases of those games, not ontological definitions of what those games are. Yeah. Um, And I think this is an interesting thing to consider because this chapter in particular is, it gets kind of ontological with the issue of double dutch. It, it really does. It, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that these two, like I said at the beginning, if you ex- excerpted this chapter and the next chapter, well, I think, let me... Oh, yeah, I mean, really, chapter six, I guess, then. If you excerpted yeah. chapter six and you put it in uh, the game design reader, like, you know, the the well-assigned one, no one would bat an eye. Yeah. Like, this would fit right in mainline game studies. Because, yeah, it it's concerned with, like, what makes Double Dutch what it is. Which is interesting to me... Uh, even though this kind of comes a few pages into the chapter when she is talking about where it comes from is fascinating to me. Oh, is uh, the, 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 the sort of more archaic term for it as Jewish Dutch? Well, not just, uh, yes. Like, so A, <laughs> so A, yeah, it, it comes out of New York, right? Yeah. Um, and that it is, it, it is unclear, like, what ethnic group invents Double Dutch? But I'm specifically yeah. thinking about her... Oh, oh, okay, yeah. So she's quoting... So, so A, it comes from New York. It's coming from... It has uh, two, two different names at one point. Uh, Double Dutch and then Jewish Dutch. Um, but she uh, looks to three different definitions from the OED. This is what I found so fascinating. So double Dutch as a term could mean three different things. We don't know which of these is where the term double Dutch as a name for a game comes from. So number one, double Dutch, quote, a language that one does not understand gibberish Two, to beat the Dutch, which is to say to do something extraordinary or startling or three that beats the Dutch, which is that beats the Dutch that beats everything. So, like, the the top of it all, you know, that kind of thing. And we don't know which of these three meanings of Double Dutch was meant to be the meaning that was given as a name, if that makes sense. Right. Right. We we do not know... We do not know how to jump from these three recorded definitions to the idea of Double Dutch as a jump rip game. Yeah, at all. And I think all are, like, very valid. Yeah, um, I, and I think that is fascinating that we we just don't because of its emergence from just play situations we don't we don't have any idea, right? So yeah, no, I mean that is yeah that's one fascinating thing, right? She points out that one we don't really know where this term comes from, and two it is like always already conspicuously ethnicized. Yes. Um. So yes, no, that's that's uh, 
very interesting. Um, and then, of course, she goes into kind of the history of how Double Dutch became a, um, a sort of pop culture image, right? Uh, like the, the what I've already mentioned about the the sort of stereotypical image of like two young black girls, or actually in this case probably more, right, playing double dutch on a city street in a place that if if it is not New York City, then it is very close to being New York City. Um, and she goes into sort of uh, the Walker and Williams thing from 1973. These mm-hmm. guys were two New York City police officers who started a um, I mean, essentially, right, you know, uh, keep kids off the streets, keep them from doing drugs and having uh, premarital sex kind of program um, where they basically just organized, like, after-school play. Um, and it w- in this case, it became a, a kind of, like, uh, at first unofficial and then official, like, double Dutch competition. Yeah. It, well, and, and that is... You... What you have to do then is quite literally police what the game is. Yes. Which which I find so interesting, right? So she begins the chapter by saying that there's if there's a rule to double dutch, then it is an aesthetic one. And she says that double dutch encompasses a quote significant span of musical time and space. So the game itself is about the mastery of of the body of the song that you're dancing to or, you know, the, the kind of chant that you're doing alongside of it and then holding those things in balance with the rope. And it requires everyone to be on board, right? So the people who are doing the double jump ropes, they have to be doing that correctly. Um, and then the person who's doing the jump rope or the people who are doing the jump rope have to be doing that correctly. And then the people who are singing, who can be any of those people or external people, they all have to be on board, right? So it's this purely social um, group activity that's happening. And so in order to make that recognizable as a sport, because the the language of sport is very, very important to these police officers, Mm -hmm. in order to make that recognizable as a sport, you then have to tightly tightly police what that musical time and space is so much in fact that it becomes non-musical right double dutch as a sport doesn't have music involved in it anymore it is just this rhythmic like brutal it sounds awful and i'm sure it's beautiful to watch (laughs) but to take it from the way that that gaunt presents it um the movement from the private well, it depends on, I guess, which way uh, you want to put it. But from the uh, social activity of Double Dutch to the sport of Double Dutch is one that loses huge amounts of like cultural importance. Mm-hmm. And they're literally, those pieces of cultural importance are literally policed out of the activity. Yes, by literal cops. By literal <laughs> cops, right? Which is interesting to me because as soon as I saw that, I was thinking of Jacques Rancière and the way that he thinks of the police. Um, and he kind of gives the language of the police to anything, any presence or any power or any activity that um, demarcates the bounds of what is considered the political or the understandable or, or, or let me say, of the understandable or the aesthetic um, and so anything that he reserves the word political for anything that um, shoots through those boundaries that the police have set up. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, if, you know, just, uh, you know, an example, right? If the literal police are out there and they are um, uh, 
protecting a group of rabble rousers <laughs> and someone <laughs> uh, were to assault one of those rabble rousers. That would be an instance in which politics are happening. Ron Sierra doesn't mm-hmm. think that like democracy is is politics happening. But what is interesting to me is that the, and Ron Sierra also makes this argument in the aesthetic realm. So if painting and if classical painting has certain rules, then when people break those rules, that is politics occurring. It's a shift in what he calls the distribution of the sensible. But what's interesting to me is that Gaunt gives an, an explicit example of politics happening here. And they're politics that are non-recognizable. So when she talks about going to the double Dutch, is it the world championships or nationals? Something like uh, that. She goes to the, I think she goes to the nationals. Um, well, Oh wait, actually it might be world championships because the group I'm talking about oh, is, is the it? French team. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's definitely world. I, yeah. I guess I had that, the, my own answer, but she says that, you know, the French team, they get there, they are dressed, uh, in this like American export garb kind of, mm-hmm. um, they look like they're from the West coast. I think she says, and in the middle of their double Dutch routine, they start break dancing, um, yeah. on their back it in the thing. And, it, and it's something that's like literally unrecognizable as double Dutch. And in fact, they go over the time limit They're They are penalized for doing this activity because it's like part of the freestyle and the freestyle can only exist, you know, in a time limit or something like that. And so literally that is a moment, you know, it is a moment where the aesthetic bounds of the activity are being broken as they are presented as a sport. But if you were doing this on the street in New York, there would be nothing to be broken. Right. I right. mean, it, it, it would just be part of the, the freestyling of the activity. Um, so I say all of that to say that I, I think that there's something really powerful going on with Double Dutch here. And when she's talking about how it's being policed and circumscribed into very particular um, quadrants, on one hand, that's bad because something gets lost in the sociality of it. On the other hand, it does provide places for a surprise to happen, for political change to happen within that. And, and sadly, like, we don't know what that looks like. Uh, you know, I don't know if that changed the world of Double Dutch in any way. Um, but certainly it changes the way that we think about performance in sport, which I think is productive and interesting. Yeah. In the same way that, like, a touchdown dance does the same thing. What it, what what I was thinking of in reading this chapter, actually, was Kawa, where he talks about, like, the, the way that play can get corrupted mm. um, by sort of its professionalization. Um and you know all of all of his other stuff you know all of his other baggage still standing this seems like a very clear example of of the corruption of play yeah because these girls have you know developed all these routines in these games and then these two cops come in um as part of their uh uh rope not dope campaign as they call it because Mm -hmm. and the other the other like little mnemonic is that girls go from toys to boys yikes uh Right, so there, there's already right the this assumption that these girls have to be uh, policed. Yeah. Right, they have to, uh, we have to sort of keep keep a, a fence around them so they're not doing drugs and they're not having sex. But then, oh, what can they do? Oh, they can do double dutch. Uh oh, it turns out a lot of these double dutch songs that they have are extremely risque. Right, and there's like a lot of uh, sort of ostentatious, like bodily movement and showoffiness. Uh, so we've got to get rid of all that. We've got to, we've got to, It's just about, it's just about doing um, weird little turns while you're going over the ropes. Uh, 
And this is what makes it a sport, right? Before it was maybe just a game, but now it is a sport. And she even talks to, Gaunt talks to uh, a spokesperson for the, um, for the league. And she says, like, this is the, the, um, the spokesperson says, it is not a dance, it's a sport. Um, but then later, within sort of the same statement, she calls it a street ballet. Yeah. <laughs> Which just flies in the face of the thing she has already claimed. Um, so yeah, no, we get this, this, like, it is, it is very sad to see, like, all of, all of the sort of organic elements, or rather I should say some of the organic elements of, of Double Dutch get stripped out, but then also it's super fascinating to watch these people, uh, bend themselves into knots trying to, trying to figure out exactly what it is that they're, that they've stumbled upon. Yeah, I mean, it feels a lot like, um... A lot like the way that skateboard skateboarding got professionalized or any of the mm-hmm. extreme sports in like the late 90s and the early 2000s. Like these are things that are, are important to people because of, of their kind of virtuoso nature. No one skates like anyone else, uh, you know, or it, well, people skate like other people. But the uh, the what people find valuable in it is that it's highly individualized and highly stylish. Um, and so things like the professionalization of a competitive circuit, the X Games, are critiqued, or have been critiqued since their founding on these lines, right? That mm-hmm. once you make it visible to a scoring apparatus, um, it fundamentally changes the, the sport. Um, and it, it has radically changed the way that skateboarding is, is kind of thought of in some circles. Uh, in other circles, not so much. But yeah, I, I yeah I found this super super fascinating, um, and like like we were saying before, right? Like this is so game studies e precisely because it is about well, what is double dutch as a competitive activity? Um, you know, what does it produce for people? And and you know, I you know something I wrote down is that. The reason, a logic for the reason that music is eliminated from the sport is uh, someone asked, well, what sport contains music? And I immediately, I was like, well, cheerleading has music, competitive cheerleading has music in it, ice skating has music in it, yeah. gymnastics have have uh, music in them. There are lots and lots of activities of sports, things that, you know, Olympic sports uh, yeah. that have, that are based on music. So um, it seems like there is something, and, and Gaunt seems to be wanting to say something about this, and, and, and uh, um, I think it's just giving us the tools to maybe get there on our own. But what does it mean that in order to turn it into the sport, you have to exclude music, which for her is th- the biggest part of all of these games, right? These are music right. games. Um, yes. And so, it, well, and oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and then we have, um, so there are two, the, the two, the two cops who um, get this started are Walker and Williams. Yeah. And also, I just want to make it clear, actually, because this is kind of a freighted topic, they are also both black men. Yeah. Um, yes. So, like, they are, at, like, this isn't just, like, two white policemen going into, like, a black community and instituting this. Yeah. Um, it's not great, but it's also, like, just, it's not the, like, most horrible condescending thing you could imagine. Um, but uh, one of, like, they, they, they have still been professionally involved with this league, and Walker, in particular, um has sort of reinvented the wheel <laughs> in this really weird way where he's uh, quote unquote invented what he calls fusion double dutch <laughs> by allowing music back in um 
And so as far as I can, and of course, like Gaunt, she's pretty withering, uh, <laughs> uh, where uh, as far as I can tell what Fusion Double Dutch ends up meaning, right, is that they have like a boom box that is playing music that they have to jump in time to or something like that. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, and so it becomes much more almost like ice skating, right, uh, in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, there's like suddenly, right, he has this brilliant idea to put music and choreography back in and Gaunt is just like, so why isn't Double Dutch in kind of its its primary form, like why doesn't that get recognized as music? Right? Why does why does the music when it comes back have to come in after being purged and when it comes back, why does it look like this? Yeah. I I don't know. Yeah. I mean I don't think I know either, but I think it's a really good question. Yeah. Oh I and, and this is what I was saying before too about like kind of giving us the tools to think yeah. To think through the problem. I think what Gone is getting at is that there is that that the apparatus is invented of double dutch as a sport is invented to police out black girls ability to come into their own as subjects mm. right like it, it is fundamentally right. removing from from double dutch all the things that gaunt sees as powerful about so many of the other games and in doing so it is taking the form and then uh removing the content Right, 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 right. So let's take out all of these sort of like neat little cheers and tricks that you maybe come up with yourself. We're going to have a boom box. Um, you know, the, the stuff that you might have learned from like your older sister, the older girls in the neighborhood. Forget that that's not as important. We're going to we're going to do like something that the judges are going to like. Yeah, exactly. Or that is recognized as the correct moves to be doing. Uh, right. this season or whatever and in doing so it means that the uh, I mean using her language right that the cultural capital of the things that you were learning from the black women in your life already that those are not valid and not recognizable within this format um, right. and so I, and I think that she has an ambivalent relationship to this because on one hand I think that I think she has some sympathy for the argument that I think Walker makes that um, that like basketball for women is not the same thing as it is for men. I think she has some sympathy for that because I think that chapter seven is, is about like older women reclaiming the games from their childhood and that being very empowering for them. So I think she has some sympathy for that, but I think she also holds that like that, that is uh, turning that into a standardized game that removes all of the important cultural maneuvering from that game is insufficient. Like it, yeah. it harm or maybe it doesn't harm, but it doesn't help anybody. Right, and so, right, like, in basketball is basketball, right? But, like, uh, treating double dutch as basketball is is not a formula for success here. Yeah. Right, because basketball already has its rules essentially built in, right? You might have variations with your friend group or what have you. um, But the things that you want out of basketball, the things that you come to expect from basketball, are probably what you're going to get when you play basketball with your friends. Yeah. Um, whereas in order for this to happen to double Dutch, we have to completely mangle it first. Yeah. Um, and maybe that happened for basketball too, but that's, yeah. you know, that's not the aim of this book. And, and I don't know enough right. about the history of basketball either. Um, and then we have chapter seven, um, which is, as you write full ethnography. Yes. Um, and for that reason, like, I don't know, I don't know if I have a lot to say about this chapter other than, like, it's a great story about women who are continuing to do 
these kinds of activities later in their life. And it's very fulfilling to them socially. And it is very affirming to black womanhood. Um, but I don't know. Did, did you get like a bigger sense of an argument out of this chapter? I, I did not. Um, yeah, no. And so, like, as I said, this just feels like full ethnography. So what she what what Gaunt does is she um, starts. It's it's difficult to, to describe exactly what she's doing here because studying isn't exactly right. Right. Because she's not like sort of hiding in the rafters, like looking down at these people. Um, she's sort of meeting them and hanging out with them and really sort of like inserting them herself into their space. Right. And um, they are like they have invited her in and they're OK with her being there. Um, but she's just sort of like they're, they're a group called the Double Dutch Divas. Um and there are adult black women in New York City who get together and they do uh, routines, right? They do double dutch routines and they do these uh, sort of, I don't know if they do these competitively exactly, but it sounds like uh, they there's like a, there is a sort of complimentary sort of league or like, uh, I don't know, circuit uh, along around which like uh, these sorts of teams perform. Um, and really what the chapter is about is sort of meeting all of these women, um, sort of figuring out who they are, uh, and what, what their reasons are for coming back to Double Dutch, what they get out of this experience, and then also Gaunt reflecting on her own experience of, uh, well, you know, starting out, like, not really knowing anyone and being sort of awkward and embarrassed, but, uh, slowly coming to, uh, feel socialized into into this group right in a way that clearly echoes a lot of the a lot of the arguments she's making about these these games and these pastimes throughout the book right that these are these are methods of building community these are ways of of learning who you are both individually but also in kind of a, a broader cultural sense right um it's what is this the quote that i like uh in black culture um, this is 171. In black culture, play is like developing a sense of who you are through other people's movement. Yeah, yeah and that, that quotation in particular, I mean, it, it feels like only only after hearing you talk through it have I come to this, but it actually feels like this chapter is the precondition for all the other chapters in that in that it feels like less the fulfillment of an of of the argument being made through the book but more like if you read this chapter and then read the rest of the chapters you can see all of those constituent pieces in this chapter in particular yeah like it doesn't feel like the the end of an argument it feels like the example that demonstrates the whole apparatus mm-hmm. um which is good. I mean, I, I I really enjoyed it, and and I like the kind of participant observer stuff that she is doing, and about how these women kind of like won't let her not participate. Yeah, no, she tries to kind of like duck out, and they're like, "No, come on!" Yeah, like they give her a nickname and everything. Yeah, because everyone has nicknames. They have like little team names. It's it's very, it's very nice. It's nice to read. Uh, it, like you don't read a lot of academic books, and you get a chapter of just like people being humans to each other. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it was really nice to have that here. Yes. Um, but it also, I mean, you know, it makes me think about like the policing of those boundaries, right? Like who is this accessible to, um, Mm -hmm. and under what conditions, right? Um, if, if you are someone who is, is incapable of being invited into this kind of scenario, 
if if this is not something that is available to you, this kind of like sociality, then um, it, you know you might not get to get a sense of who you are through other people's movement. Yeah, no, I mean, what I was thinking was like um, the class aspect. We don't get 100%. Uh, we don't get a whole like sort of like socioeconomic background for all of these people, but like you know they are people who have free time, right? And a yeah. couple of the women I know, one of them she might be was it the one who is sort of like the the current sort of like leader at the time that she's there she's like a she works for um um oh god the chocolatier uh Ghirardelli or something like that oh i did not catch that yeah no uh she yeah no she's like a um an executive or something for Ghirardelli chocolates or something hmm. so anyway right there there is like I mean, cool, right? Like she's she's an empowered like businesswoman, but then also this means that she has something like free time, right? Yeah. Like her job it has built in kind of um, this notion of of free time. She doesn't have to work a second job or a third job or a third. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I wonder. I still at the end of this, I'm I'm left wondering, and that's that's a good example of of who who gets to get full participation in this, and if this is the way that full life is achieved under these conditions or you know in, in the genealogy of like african-american life in america um then it seems like lots of people don't get access to that full life still um, mm-hmm. um even in within this particular games culture um and maybe that's not surprising and maybe this is what really <laughs> unites it with games culture is that uh on one hand it's very empowering and very welcoming and on the other hand it is fundamentally at some level exclusionary mm-hmm. because it's a social activity um and the social is predicated on exclusions welcome to game study study buddies where the social is predicated on exclusion <laughs> but it is it's a bummer and it's bad um and maybe and maybe the power of this right is to say that like this is specifically a set of social practices that are meant to uh shoot through that and prevent that from mm-hmm. being the case but in fact i think that probably still occurs um so and th- there's a conclusion to this book um mm-hmm. what what do you think about the conclusion here i didn't have much to say about it other than the uh the planet rock thing that we already talked about yeah i mean i was mostly just like excited when manning marable showed up mm-hmm. because i i went to the same undergraduate institution as manning marable um Obviously not at the same time, uh-huh. but <laughs> this means that I had I, I had to hear a lot about Manning Marable and and uh, read a bunch of his stuff. So I'm just like, ah, oh, Manning Marable, always nice when when he shows up somewhere. He passed away. Yeah, at some point, fairly recently, right? In the past five yeah, years, fair, fairly recently. Um, hold on, I'm just gonna look this up. It's the most important part of the episode when we find yeah, out no. when people died. Yeah, he died in. Uh, April of 2011. Okay, wow. Not in the past five years. A long Not time ago. Not in the past five years. Also, uh, yeah, wow. Um, that would have been like a month before I graduated from <gasps> undergrad. So anyway, yeah, no, yeah. this conclusion. Yeah, you should. He's, he's a smart guy. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, the conclusion, the, the little um, thing that ends this, right, is she's presenting at, uh, what is it called? It's the Institute for Research in African-American Studies hmm. uh, Conference at Columbia University. Um, and Manning Mirable is there, and he gets a little name drop um, because he he apparently responded to her presentation 
uh, and uh, he responded specifically because he he was recognizing uh, the popular songs that were embedded in some of the cheers that she was that she was uh, giving them mm-hmm. um, a sort of view of, uh, and then yeah, then we have uh, this other PhD student who comes up and doesn't like it does the own cheer does her own cheer, but doesn't realize that she's just uh, quoting Planet Rock. I mean, this ends up being I. I guess one of her final examples, right? She says, this is kinetic morality at work. The link between black girls and adult popular music suggests that black girls games represent a somatic historiography of black musical experience and that tracing the interchange between girls games and popular songs clearly points to a gendered, translocal, and intergenerational culture of black musical expression. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. I don't know why. I, this is maybe the question I'm left with. I don't know why Afro Caribbean and African, other African diasporic people get left out. Yeah, I, I, I other I, than like, it is convenient to do so methodologically. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I think it would have. I mean, I, I liked this book on its own, and I think like a companion book that basically does the same thing, but looks at these these other uh, communities within the diaspora would have been super fascinating. Um, just because it would allow allow some of these claims and these hypotheses to be tested or expanded. Um, yeah, because you know, I'm interested. Is, is it the relationship between? Um, American black culture and the American record industry that does this, you know, mm-hmm. or is it, does the same thing happen with dub in Britain? Right. Uh, right. well in right. the, in the, in the Caribbean first and then in Britain, um, like, is that the process that is, is happening or is there a separate set of processes? Um, which like it doesn't, you know, it only makes the case more compelling either way, right? Either A, America is completely unique and it's bizarre, or B, <laughs> it is a, uh, it actually is translocal. I mean, that's the the word that you just pulled from the quote, right? That yeah. that it moves across different uh, interstitial areas in the world, um, which would perhaps, I mean, maybe the problem is that necessitates a larger critique of capitalism and the critique of, mm-hmm. of the stuff, but she's very willing to go to Stuart Hall to explain how like the mechanisms yeah. of how cultures work. Right. And he's pretty tactical about only talking or not only, but speaking specifically about the conditions that he was in, which is in Britain. So who knows? Yeah. Well, I don't know. And that's the end. Yeah. I am going to choose our next book and I think it is going to be gaming the stage playable media and the rise of English commercial theater by Gina Bloom. It's a new book. It just came out this year. Um, and it is available open access, uh, on the, it was published by university of Michigan press. Um, there is a link there that takes you to an online open access version in case you like to read digitally and don't want to buy a physical book. So we will put that on. That'll be on Twitter. We'll tweet about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, all right, sweet. Okay. Well, we're going to read that next. I hope you can find something to pair with that thing. Good luck, (laughs) buddy. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. I've got some, I, I, I've got some ideas, but I'm going to do some more research. Eventually, if, if, uh, if I keep letting you choose things, eventually you're just going to be like, all right, well, we're reading Hamlet. 
<laughs> I mean, we could, right? <laughs> I've written I've written about Hamlet in games. Mm-hmm. Also, I just got um I just got a piece of work. I just got my copy of that. Ooh. Uh, I was gonna say, do you know about this? No. Um, so a piece of work is uh I'm trying to remember I think her name her last name is Dorson. Okay, it's Annie Dorson. Um it is her play. She does uh, Annie Dorson uh, does this thing called algorithmic theater, uh-huh. which means a lot of things. But her play, A Piece of Work, is a uh, program she wrote that takes the text of Hamlet and like chops and screws it in like a bunch of Markov chains and writes a new play based on that text. Um, hmm. So I, I just got her her book, which is like the code for writing the algorithm, and then a bunch of sample outputs. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Yep. Hmm. Fun times. Yep. All right. So next time we are reading. Gosh, I'm. It's gonna be hard for you. Gaming the stage. <laughs> yeah, playable media and the rise of English commercial theater. Okay, sounds good. We'll be back in less than a month uh, from now. Oh. Michael, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead, and you can find my website, which I have not updated in forever at correlatedcontents.com. You can find me on Twitter at C Kunzelman. That's, that's all you need. Um, all right. Well, we'll be back in less than a month with the next episode, gaming the stage bloom. Goodbye. Bye.